Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. OPEC is hours away from a decision on oil. The Shanghai Composite jumps to a three-year high and the S&P closes for the 29th consecutive day above its five-day moving average. And the European Commission unleashes a 300 billion euro investment plan to kickstart Europe's economy. Lots to discuss on Money for Nothing this morning. We'll be talking with guest host Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting about the break Breakdowns in the unusual, in sorry, in the usual correlations between the various markets. We'll also assess investors' reaction to the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect. And joining us for that discussion is Tim Craighead of Bloomberg. Then we'll talk about various corporate matters. Farzana Aslam, a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong, talks about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And Sohail Bindra of the Eureka Consulting Group will join us to talk about his efforts to provide free consulting services to non-government organizations. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning, Renita, and happy Thanksgiving Day. And a happy Turkey Day to you as well. I hope you uh, have got a feast planned later on. I will try my best. I'm Uh, always good at eating turkey. I I actually know that from (laughs) past experience. Okay, what do you make of these extraordinary moves in the markets? Um, Absolutely unprecedented moves going on in terms of the scale and magnitude of some of the moves. Some of them can be described as crashes and also, you know, a breakdown in normal relationships between markets and different asset classes. They're they're at historic levels now and, and, in fact, very worrying as well. All right, hold that thought. Uh, we'd definitely like to investigate more. Uh, let's look at some of the top stories. The surge in Chinese equity trading that coincided with market peaks in 2009 and 2010 is back again as the Shanghai Composite jumped to a three-year high. The index rose 1.4% to 2,604 yesterday, which is its uh, highest level since August 2011. And U.S. stock markets edged high to new records following U.S. economic data showing a slight rise in consumer spending, high durable goods orders, and a modest increase in home sales, in new home sales, I should say. The Dow finished at 17,827, up 12 points, or uh, 0.1%, about nine points above its previous record, and the S&P 500 rose point, uh, sorry, point, uh, 0.3% to 2,072, which is also an all-time high. So, Peter, this the S&P has closed for 29 consecutive days above its five-day moving average. Has this ever happened before? Well, this is a record in terms of U.S. financial markets, and it's basically saying the market is just going up in a straight line. We we don't see normally this number of consecutive days. The last time, I think the second time where we had a, a similar move was actually back in 1929, rather worryingly. So th- these are not normal um, sort of moves. And also, it, it, it's not correlated with what's going on in, in the US bonds. Treasury yields are plummeting. They're back to almost the lows we saw in, um, in October. So something is wrong because government bond yields are suggesting that the global economy is in big trouble. Yields are plummeting all around the world. But yet equities seem to be signaling that everything is great. One of them has to be wrong somewhere. So how do we make sense of this? Well, the, the reason it's happening, I mean, if you look at the commodity markets, I mean, there, you know, we're seeing crashes in commodity prices. I mean, iron ore fell again overnight, another 1%. It fell 2% on Tuesday. It's now down 50% this year. That's a crash. It's at a five and a half year low. Oil is at a four year low, down 30% since June. That's a crash. Copper is at a new four year low.
year low. You could describe that as a crash. These are, you know, extraordinary moves that we're seeing. And it's coming about, in my view, because of the central banks. There are huge distortions going on in um, financial prices around the world now because of the money that's being pumped into um, sort of global markets. And if you think, you know, the U.S. economy is growing last quarter 3.9 percent, but yet interest rates are at zero. So, okay, central banks, I mean, th- th- this is a good point that you, you, you bring up because while many of them are continuing sort of their easing policies, uh, the U.S., as you know, is sort of withdrawn from that. And the U.S. economy is still currently the largest in the world. Yep. So should that not compensate? Well, the, the U.S. economy is doing better than probably all the other um, regions around the world. And one of the reasons for that is the financial sector, after the financial crisis, actually deleveraged. Because the problem is, the reason why we're seeing deflation, the reason why we're seeing economies struggle is there is too much debt. The world has $100 trillion of debt now, if you add up private sector, uh, you know, household debt, private sector debt, government debt, huge amounts. Probably the US has done more to try and deleverage and restructure. We have We haven't seen that in Europe, we haven't seen that in um, Japan, and we certainly haven't seen it in China. So that's one of the reasons why it tends to be outperforming. But the problem is, can the US economy carry on outperforming when around the world, and it depends upon the rest of the world to export and trade with, economies seem to be slowing and, and even in decline in some places such as Japan? So I'm sensing there goes your bear hat once again on this turkey day. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so this uh, oil crash uh, certainly hasn't helped things. The oil crash that you mentioned, oil is at a four-year low. And clearly the story of the day is OPEC. Uh, Oil leaders meet in Vienna later today. And the big question is whether they will do anything, you know, about the falling prices. There's a range of opinion out there. Um, Andy Lipo, who is the president of Oil Associates in the USA, expects a cut. Well, I'm expecting that they're going to make some announcement that we need better compliance. We're looking at the market and I'm in the camp that I do expect a cut of 500,000 barrels a day, which may stabilize prices for a moment. But the market is going to immediately look and say how much cheating is going on. So a cut, but an ineffective one. Why? At 500,000 barrels a day, I think the market is going to drift lower because they're not going to stop the oncoming uh, shell production over the next couple of months or the significant amount of Gulf of Mexico production that's coming on. And in about six weeks, the market is already going to be looking ahead at spring demand, which is seasonally lower than it is right now. Now, Texas oil market analyst Abhishek Deshpande says that if they do nothing, we could see oil going into a steep contango. Well, to be honest, if you look at after Naomi's comments, what prices have done, to be honest, prices have not done much right now. And this could be an indication that the floor is there somewhere around where it is right now. But will it remain there? I don't think so. Because what will happen is if there are no cuts being made right now, markets will sense that the oversupply is going to be there in the market for a longer period of time. And then we are looking at 2008 scenario where a lot of oil will need storage capacities, right? Onshore storage capacity will run out and then oil will have to move from onshore to offshore. And that would mean that oil will go into a steep contango, bringing spot prices considerably below where they are right now. So even if markets do not react much as of now, you will see a reaction to the oil prices eventually as uh, storages get full. So he also agrees that prices are going to drop. The question is, how much are we going to see prices drop?
I would not be surprised that the drop will be significant, uh, provided that the markets will be uh, oversupplied in, in, to a very large extent. Right now, uh, the growth in supply is almost 600,000 uh, barrels per day, more than the growth in demand. And it, it's only going to get worse next year, especially the first quarter of next year, when the seasonal demand is even lower than the last quarter of this year right now. So it's going to get worse. And you could see prices falling below, even below $65 per barrel. Now, Chad Brownstein of Rocky Mountain Resources says that the broader question is actually about how oil is being used as an economic weapon throughout the Middle East. You're going to see red for a couple of days, but ultimately what the Saudis are doing, they're letting the destabilization take place to their neighbors. They're focusing on how they're going to protect themselves and insulate themselves long term. And I think the conversation, now that we know it's going to end up being right around the number of 30 million barrels a day that they're going to try to manage is much more about what the neighbors to Saudi are going to do to the future and less about what's going to happen about this particular cut. Okay, so uh, Abhishek says that Saudi Arabia is in quite a difficult position right now. Any cutbacks that it makes, not only U.S. shale producers will make most of it, even the other OPEC producers could make most out of it. Even if they promise today that they're going to cut, what are the chances that they will adhere to, to those cuts? So it's, it's a very difficult situation for Saudi, and hence it's trying to wield its power, especially after the Iranian uh, sanctions were not lifted. It is in a stronger position to wield these powers uh, and make sure that the other OPEC members either come on board and stick to their cu- cuts that they, are, that they decide uh, tomorrow, or lower oil prices could equally also help Saudi. Saudi Arabia in the future, maintaining their market share, spurring global demand, which means in the future more oil will be required again. And also lower oil prices will make sure that some of the higher break-even oil producers will be taken out of the market. Peter, what's your take on this? How easy or difficult of a situation is this for Saudi? Um, It's a very difficult situation. I mean, one of the problems is on the supply side, the world is oversupplied now by about 2 million barrels a day. And that's largely because of the shale revolution in the US. Um, The US is now producing uh, more oil than it has done since the mid-1980s. And as a result, it imports far less from OPEC. It's about the lowest in 30 years. And and if OPEC cuts production, all that will happen is the US shale... um, shell companies will actually increase their market share and they will be more profitable. So a, a cut for, for OPEC is not necessarily helpful for all of the OPEC countries. And the other, on the other side of the equation, you have the demand. World economy is slowing, and in particular in China. China is the world's biggest importer of oil now. So actually, I think maybe the thing that's going to dictate the oil price over the next few months is Chinese GDP. If GDP falls below um, 7%, the oil price could fall substantially. From, from where it is now. Still, even if the oil price does fall, as you and some of these other analysts are suggesting, um, others are saying there is still plenty of global demand um, everywhere. So does this present a buying opportunity for oil? Well, I, I would be very careful. I would watch very closely what happens in China. I mean, China is buying a lot of oil right now at low prices, but the problem is there's limited storage facilities, so you can't do that forever. You can only put it in certain um, sort of places. But, you know, a lot of these oil companies are very, very highly leveraged. If you look in the US, the, the US high-yield bond index, 16% of that is energy companies. It's the highest percentage of the sector. And as, and as the oil price falls, they become less profitable and they have to start looking at restructuring their debt.
All right. Well, the the price of Brent crude oil currently is seventy seven dollars and seventy five cents a barrel. The Nikkei is down three tenths of a percent to seventeen thousand three hundred and eighteen. Australia's ASX is up point one four percent to five thousand three hundred eighty seven. And Sol's Kospi is up six tenths of a percent to one thousand nine hundred and ninety three. Well, after a rocky start, direct cross-border stock trading between Hong Kong and Shanghai appears to be picking up some some steam. Chris Oliver has the story. Good morning, Chris. It was a difficult week for the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect uh, through Friday. Investors used up only a small fraction of the daily trading quota. According to the latest uh, data, about $4.3 billion was sent into China over the five trading days. And meanwhile, mainland Chinese investors showed fairly moderate interest in buying Hong Kong-listed shares, using up only about 6% of the daily quota. Uh, we're joined now by Tim Craighead. He's Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. So things seem to be uh, on the pickup in at least Shanghai. As you heard earlier, the index ended at a three-and-a-half-year high yesterday. Uh, what's turning in your view here? Well, if you, if you look at a couple of points here, if you if you think about what's going on with the Shanghai Hong Kong Connect, we can come back to that one. Um, a lot is not happening with that, but over time, hopefully, will. If you look at uh, very interesting as part of this, uh, a divergence. Speaking um, as you all were before about various divergences, been a big divergence between uh, Hang- uh, Shanghai listed shares and what we see here in Hong Kong. Uh, a massive divergence, and part of that may be the um, the thematically driven, momentum oriented retail investor flow, which makes up a lot of local Chinese investing relative to. The Occupy Central uh, issue, which continues to occupy um, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange um, and global investor views of what's transpiring here. If you look at the difference of what's transpired since early September, uh, we've seen China-listed shares continue to move higher. We've seen Hong Kong basically stuck um, and that's, you know, it's separate but a related topic. Okay, well, we, we still had a fairly lackluster start to the, uh, the, to the Connect last week. Uh, even flows heading northward. So, what's the reason for that? Uh? Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. I mean, clearly there's a lot of a lot of um, high expectations uh, bordering on hype as it relates to the connect. I think longer term, that's very well justified. If you think fundamentally, there is it, this is a, a major breakthrough from the standpoint of further opening uh, of capital flows into and out of China. If you look specifically at what's transpired so far, as you had mentioned earlier, the flows uh, have been anemic. On the first day, uh, there was a full quota of purchasing northbound, but since then, it's been you know, 20 25% of the daily quota. Coming southbound, it's been negligible. And I think that is just sort of infrastructure and and the dynamics of getting accustomed to trading cross-border. It's, you know, you look at the Chinese investors I mentioned, they're retail-oriented, momentum-oriented, sort of thematically-oriented, and there's been a lot of excitement about the potential for northbound flow coming in and helping to drive the China market. You've now had stimulus as well being triggered uh, by the PBOC, which is helping to drive the China market. And down here... Um, 
Uh, you've got institutional investors who take time to really think about the fundamentals, the financials. It's going to take time for global investors based here and trading out of Hong Kong to really dig into China. I'll, I'll ask uh, Peter to come in with a question in a moment. Uh, just before we do that, is, are there anything uh, that you're watching on the regulation front or any kind of you know, logistical change that could give a boost to the program? Well, um, I, I think one of the, 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 the big questions that uh, everybody had up front was one on taxation that was resolved favorably, which is very good. Um, you know, I really think that over time this will likely pick up steam just simply with the building analysis that's done from here looking into China. It takes a lot of work. And over time, if you think about um, the, the Chinese investor with the, the sort of sentiment-driven type investing that they do, there's a lot of interesting stuff that they can look at here, whether it's luxury goods, whether it's the gaming stocks, whether it's some of the, the big national um, uh, flag telecom carriers that they've never been able to invest in. Jim, and just, just a question not to cut you off, yeah. uh, but just to wrap up briefly, uh, what would you be watching now for that uh, sectors in China that actually would be worth buying? Yeah. Um, it's a couple of things there. There, There is a wealth of um, small to mid-cap mid industrial material companies that we've never had access to. to, access to. You think about China being the, the, the global manufacturing hub of the world. Um, we've never really been able to invest in it stock by stock. Now we can. There's also some interesting just one-off names like Mutai, um, which is a very cool consumer brand uh, we've never been able to touch. Okay. So things like that. All right. Thank you very much. That's Tim Craighead of Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you, Chris. Diversity and inclusion in the workplace. This is becoming a hot topic uh, amongst uh, corporates here in Hong Kong, especially as they try and make their employees aware of things like unconscious bias. Joining us to discuss this now is Farzana Aslam, and she is the Associate Director of the Center for Comparative and Public Law at Hong Kong University. Good morning, Farzana. Good morning, Renita. So, Farzana, can you explain to us Firstly, what is meant by unconscious bias and, and why is this even relevant for companies here in Hong Kong? Well, unconscious bias is, um, I mean, I, let me posit a definition uh, that has a couple of components. First of all, it, it's this idea that it's inflexible. In other words, it goes on uh, in the unconscious mind. It's um, impulsive. It's something that we don't necessarily have any rational control over. Um, and it can it can be positive or negative, but it's generally a belief about a particular category of people. So um, it, it's it's a judgment, it's an assumption, it's an attitude that goes on in our heads. It's not necessarily translated into behaviour straight away. And, and, and Farzana, in Hong Kong, in companies specifically, uh, who are people or employees biased against or towards? <laughs> Um, good question. Well, it depends on the individual because everybody everybody has a, has a bias and everybody is affected by bias. Um, but there is a tendency within a workplace context to be biased towards the dominant group. In other words, there's it's a natural human tendency for us to want to be drawn to people who are like us. Um, and that's in, in the workplace, it tends to be whatever the dominant group is and how they behave. 
Um, so, for example, um, if you look at sort of from a strategic perspective, organizations that tend to be action orientated. So in other words, you know, they, they um, tend to like people who project great confidence. The danger with that is that decision making becomes not particularly objective. Um, and in, in fact, in most organizations, somebody who projects great confidence in a plan is much more likely to get that approved than someone who lays out all the risks and uncertainties surrounding it. Okay, I'd, I'd like to bring in uh, Peter. Peter, you know, in all your years as a CEO of MF Global, have you, have you seen this kind of thing uh, amongst your employees? I, I think everyone has inherent biases, whether they realize it or not. And I think it's important for companies to come up with um, in policies that are inclusive, that are diverse, because there's real benefits for companies in having inclusion and diversity. You know, companies talk about entrepreneurship, creativity. One of the ways in which you create that is by having people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different sexual orientations who, you know, who talk to each other, challenge each other and bring new perspectives to the workplace. And I'm sure, Fazano, um, you know, you, you can think of many examples of where, um, you know, having those types of policies actually really benefits corporations. Uh, I, I agree, although I think where Hong Kong is at the moment is that most or many companies have these policies, diversity policies, and even um, goals and, and targets about diversity. But um, my kind of warning really is that diversity by itself is actually can be harmful to an organization. It can lead to conflict and breakdown in communications. Uh, what needs to be um, uh, alongside these policies is a real effort to create inclusive cultures. And that really um, is where unconscious bias comes in because uh, uncon unconscious bias now is seen as, as the big um, threat to diversity. In other words, unless you can overcome those unconscious biases, diversity is never going to work. Farzana, we, we, we have uh, actually, unfortunately, not much time left, but uh, I have to ask you one question before we wrap up this segment. I am personally biased, consciously, uh, <laughs> towards women. Um, this, this is not a show about gender, but my pet peeve is that we do not have enough female guests, which makes me very happy that you're our guest today. And there are a lot of women in finance in Hong Kong. Why are they reluctant to come on this show? Is this got to do with unconscious bias or conscious bias? Uh, I think I think it does have a lot to do with unconscious bias. Um, you know, I think generally, if you if you think about finance, if you think about um, uh, money, um, financial services, most people will think about a man in a suit. If you had to think about a woman or a man, you, your instinctive reaction is going to think about a man in a suit. And I think women have their own. You, you can have your own biases that actually harm you, even though you want to be a successful person within financial services, you can hold yourself back by um, taking on board those unconscious biases that, that everybody else has. And of course, that just gets reinforced. By okay. Thanks, Farzana. It's, it's great stuff. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is Farzana Aslam, and she's the Associate Director of the Center for Comparative and Public Law at Hong Kong University. Okay, Peter, so uh, she said, man in a suit, you're not in a suit. That's because this is radio, and that's what we like about it. <laughs> but um, another big topic for corporations that we're going to talk about this morning is CSR. Uh, this is a big topic 
topic all through the year, but especially around the holidays. Now, Eureka Consulting Group is taking CSR to a whole new level. They uh, have est- they are established for the benefit of NGOs, social enterprises, and charities. And I'd like to welcome on the show Sohel Bindra who is the Managing Director of Eureka Consulting Group. Good morning, Sahel. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on the show. So tell us about Eureka Consulting Group. I'm, I'm particularly interested in your business model because you were actually set up as a company, as an enterprise, yet you provide free services. So how does this work? Right, so we're currently in the process of applying for charitable status with the Inland Revenue Department. But before we do that, before we can get donations on a tax-exempt basis, our, our model is that we have fee-paying clients, and we use the revenue generated from those fee-paying clients to offset the cost of our pro bono projects. So the focus, really, of our company is the pro bono projects. And once we get the charitable status, then we can let go of the fee-paying clients and do what we're established to do, which is social good. And what are these pro bono projects? So we have two clients currently uh, on a pro bono basis. The first is the Ebenezer School for the Visually Impaired, and we're doing a comprehensive survey uh, about the difficulties that their alumni face when entering the, the employment workspace. And the second client is Arc Eden. It's an ecological society based in Lantau Island. So ha- you have consultants. The consultants are members of the Hong Kong University. How do you select those consultants? What sort of process do you go through to match your consultants with your clients? Well, it's, it's a very rigorous process. What we do first is identify the client's needs. And once we identify the client's needs, then we match those needs with the skills of the consultants, of the students. So what we do is we target students from the specific faculties that are relevant to the project that we'll be doing. So be it the faculty of business, economics, could be law, politics, it could be any of those faculties. And the recruitment process is three-tiered. So you have an online application, an individual interview, and a group interview. And what what we are looking for is beyond uh, mere hard skills. We're looking for soft skills because in consulting, uh, those soft skills are very important because you have to convince the client that you can help them. You have to make the client feel comfortable. And, of course, they have to share information about their enterprise. And you have to convince them, okay, you're students. Now, how can you actually help? Well, you have to be especially convincing. And are clients sometimes surprised because, you know, you are a group of young but very talented sort of individuals but nevertheless maybe you're talking to people who are you know been in their business for 30 years or so do they sometimes push back a little bit against that and think you know how what do you guys how can you help us at such an age oh absolutely i think initially we we do have a sort of a skepticism when people see that we're students but what we do offer and we we do offer a fresh perspective and really i think that's very valuable because if you if you're doing the same thing every day then sometimes you tend to overlook certain things and and by coming in we have have six bright students who help each client who are very, very, very motivated to do social good. And I think matching that uh, inspiration and that motivation with these clients who could really use our help, that's where we have uh, a great social impact. Lots to talk about. Unfortunately, we are out of time as usual, Peter, huh? Uh, Sahil, before you depart, tell our listeners quickly where they can find uh, the Eureka Consulting Group. You can find us at www.ecg.hk. 
Thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is Sohail Bindra, the Managing Director of the Eureka Consulting Group. And thank you for joining us, Peter. It's been my pleasure. Our Thursday guest host, uh, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, who will be eating turkey later today. <laughs> All right. A look, quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 17,337. Australia's ASX index is down just slightly to 5,379. And Seoul's Kospi up half a percent to 1,900. In currencies, the euro is currently at 1.25 US dollars. One US dollar will buy you 117 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 24 cents. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up for the show. Money for nothing on this Thanksgiving Thursday and a quick look at the weather forecast. It'll be cloudy with a few rain patches, slightly cooler with a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees during the day. Currently, it's 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 79%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary. The Federation of Students says it will now escalate its actions against the government and there is no longer any room for dialogue with the administration over political reform here. The student body made the comments after police cleared demonstrators from the Occupy sites in Mong Kok. A core member of the Federation of Students is Yvonne Leung. I think uh, we've made it very clear that if they continued uh, the violence way of like, clearing up the, the place uh, will have further actions. And actually, uh, I think that further actions uh, include a possibility of uh, some actions of escalations pointed at like the government, uh, some of the government-related um, uh, buildings or some of the uh, government-related departments. So uh, we'll have details uh, released later, but, but not today. Seven officers have been arrested for assault in connection with an alleged case of police brutality against Civic Party member Ken Tsang last month.